As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, again, amazing to us that we have before us a book that you have given to us, worked through people throughout history, century after century to write trust because it's from you that you have superintended it in such a way and these authors in such a way that you have written to us and given to us that which is true, dependable, reliable. So as we read it, we know that we're hearing from you. And so Father, I pray that you would enable us to trust you, to trust this word, to hear it, to understand it, to believe it so that it would inform our very lives that we might be the people you have made us, created us to be. We might live in such a way that reveals, that shows how glorious you are. This, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy in chapter 6, please. I want to read verses 11 uh, through 16. First Timothy, please. Hear the word of God. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Fights the good fights of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed And only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, let's begin with this question. Why is it? That Sunday after Sunday, we read the Bible. <laughs> Not for many of you, for all I trust, for all who, who come to a church, you expect that. But, but, but why do we really do that? And we do it because, you see, this we believe, as I mentioned in praying, that we believe this is the very word of God. He feeds our souls through this word. He strengthens us. He gives us truth by which we live, it speaks of him and it speaks of us. Since we're created in his image in order for us to get to know ourselves, we really must know the one who made us, the one in whose image we have been made. And so, so we come and, and God is gracious to give us one day in seven. He set up this cycle of one day in seven for us to stop that which we're doing and to gaze upon him. And so we're here to do that, to listen, to hear from him, to worship him, to receive from him. Sometimes we're not ready to listen. Sometimes it's difficult because some of these thoughts are hard thoughts which are laid before us. Sometimes 
the significance doesn't strike us immediately, but there's this cumulative effect week by week by week that strengthens and nourishes us. And so we continue to do this and we continue to come to this word because it is the word of God and reveals to us who God, who God is. And so, so Paul, this apostle, this older pastor sent from Jesus, writes to Timothy. Timothy, a young man who's planting this church, as we've said, in Ephesus. We've been in this letter since January, I think, thinking through it. And, and now we come to the end. And, and, and here is Paul writes to Timothy to feed Timothy's soul, to help him as the pastor of this church, uh, to, to, to enable Timothy to, to persevere in faith in this community in ancient Ephesus, which would not have been an easy community in which to be a Christian. Uh, the church would, would be in the proximity of one of the ancient wonders of the world, if you were wonders of the ancient world, this, this temple to the goddess Diana, and, and, and people would pilgrimage there, people would come there to worship uh, this pagan deity. And, and Timothy had this church in Ephesus, it was right there, if you will, in, in the midst of all of that, and it was a place where emperor worship was, was, was rampant, that is, that, that, that people put their confidence, their trust in the emperor to, to provide for them and to enable them to prosper and to keep themselves. Imagine that, people trusting the government uh, to enable them to prosper and to keep them safe. Uh, but but they, there they were in the midst of that. And so here's Timothy with this confession, this pronouncement that Jesus is the Lord, that there is, that, that, that there is um, salvation, that is reconciliation with God, knowing God only through faith in him. So that's the message he has. So Tim, Timothy receives this letter from Paul so that he can be enabled, strengthened to, to carry on. So Paul tells Timothy, as the church, you're the very household of God, the very presence of God. And so as people come to faith in Jesus in the context of the life of the community of believers, they live in the very presence of God. It's not in that temple to the goddess, but it's, it's here in the midst of these who profess faith, who believe in Jesus, the very household of God, the very temple, if you will, there of the living God. And he says you're to be a pillar and a buttress, a pillar and a support of the truth that, that you have been given because of anything special in you, but because of a, a gift. You've been given this truth, this gospel, to protect, to believe, to keep, to obey, to teach, to declare. You've been entrusted with it. So Timothy here, now is how you are to live and how the church is to be in the midst of this community. And so, so, so he gives this to us as well because here we find ourselves as the church of the living God, uh, part of a believing community in, in our own city. And here we've been given the word of God that we're to protect, we're to keep, we're to believe, we're to obey, we're to teach, we're to declare, all of that, you see. So, so here we are as well. So we listen to this letter written to Timothy as if it's written as if it's written to us. And we come to the very end of it. We, we took up, as you might remember if you were here, verses 11 uh, and 12 last Sunday. But now as we come to the end, we find Paul giving this charge to Timothy. Note in verse 13, he says, I charge you. Now, a charge is, is sort of a final word. It's, it's kind of this, 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 this instruction right before a person embarks on something new. 
a charge is given. I want to remind you. I want to make sure that we're clear about this. If we're not clear about anything else, I want to make sure that we're clear about this. For instance, uh, at a wedding ceremony, if you pay attention, which I wouldn't expect you to, but if you would pay attention to the order of worship in a wedding, uh, there's a moment called the charge to the couple. Means various things in different traditions. In our tradition, that charge of the couple means that the pastor says something the effect of, in the presence of God and in these witnesses, I charge you both that you know that your marriage is pleasing to God. And then I add, because this we know to be true, that when two people are joined together, uh, as God's word allows, their union is blessed by Him. And so there's a sense in which, before we get too far into this wedding ceremony, this marriage ceremony, I want to make sure. That this couple gets it. They understand we're in the presence of God. And what's really important is that this marriage is pleasing to him. At that point in time, if, if they would think, oh, I don't think this marriage is pleasing to God, then I would want them to stop it. Right? Yeah, that's the charge. And so there's a sense in which Paul writes to Timothy and he says, I charge you now in the presence of God who's the giver of life and, and in Christ Jesus who made the good confession, he says, I want to charge you now in their presence something. I want to make sure that, b- that before I finish, that you understand what's really at stake here, what's going on here. So notice how he puts it. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. It takes Paul a little time to get to the charge. He has to qualify it or at least Put it in a context. So then verse 14, he says, in a sense, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. So that's the charge. The charge to Timothy is to keep this commandment. What commandment? Uh, if you've been reading with us through First Timothy, you'll find a number of things that Paul has commanded, instructed, exhorted concerning Timothy. It could be that he's referring back to what we just talked about in verses 11, 12, and 13, what he talked about last Sunday. That he, you remember, he, he gave Timothy these, these commands. And, and you, you had a sense that he's summing a lot of things up in that particular command. He said, first of all, he said, flee these things. It is all that which is inconsistent with following Christ. He says, flee them, run away from them. Flee these things. And then he said, pursue. And he listed a number of godly traits. He says, pursue these things because these things are consistent with what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so, Timothy, make sure in your life and the life of your church that you're fleeing these ungodly things and you're pursuing these things which are consistent with being a follower of Christ. And then he says, fight the good fight of the faith, another command. In other words, you have this faith, not just your personal faith, but this this truth, the faith, the gospel, that which is true about Jesus. He says, I want you to fight for it, that is to say, make sure that you keep it pure, the true gospel, and also fight with it, meaning when you have this truth, use that truth to enable you to know what to flee and what to pursue. So fight this good fight of the faith. And he said, in so doing then, you will take hold of or grab a hold of this eternal life, this life that, yes, in one sense is to come, but yet has come to those who believe. 
this life that is from God, this life that means that you live in the presence of God, and that's a good thing, that you that you delighted by that. It's the favorable presence of God upon you. The presence of God that the Israelite priests would pronounce to the people, and that great blessing, that the Lord bless you and keep you, and make his face to shine upon you. That kind of presence of God. You live there. You're reconciled to him. You're forgiven your sins. He's your father. You have access to to him. You can call upon him. You know that he's working all things for good. You know that. That eternal life, grab a hold of it. It could be that. It says, take hold of that. could be that he's charging him to keep the, the overall instruction of this letter, which includes what we just mentioned, but it also includes that... that uh, uh, that he was to deal with those who are false teachers, that he was to appoint elders who are godly, appoint deacons who are godly, that he was to care for the church in a particular way as he instructed with widows and the poor and so forth, that that, 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 that instruction. It could be that he's referring to the commandment that Jesus gave that would have been known to everyone. Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love each other. As I have loved you, that commandment, that would incorporate all of this as well. In fact, Paul hints at that as he opened his letter because he said in verse 5, you remember, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So, so all of that could have been included in this, in this charge, no doubt. And Paul is to keep this commandment unstained and, and without reproach, meaning in his own life, he's, he's, to, he's to, to, to live it out in a way that's pure, that's right, that's good. And he lives out this commandment without diluting it, without compromising it at all. That's the charge. He's, he's to do that. And Paul gives him some incentives. He says, now I'm giving you this charge in the presence of God. This is not a light thing. God is here in the moment and I'm giving you this charge in his presence. He's listening to me giving this charge. He's approving of this charge. You're hearing it and receiving it in his presence. When you say yes to this, you're not just saying yes to me as your mentor in the faith. You're saying yes in the presence of God. And he's the one who gives life. He's the one that you count on for everything. And that's the one in whose presence you're hearing this. And not only that, it's in the presence of Christ Jesus, who himself, as you, Timothy, but himself, made the good confession as he stood before his accuser, this governor, Pontius Pilate, as, as he stood there in Pilate's presence and Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, it's as you say, meaning yes. He said, I've come to bear witness of this kingdom It's not of this world, but this kingdom. He stood there in the midst of Pilate, knowing that that good confession would lead to his suffering, would lead to his death. And so Paul says to Timothy, you're taking this charge. When you receive it, when you receive this charge, you're receiving it in the presence of the one who took the good confession. And it cost him. It might cost you. Don't take it. Lightly, you're in the presence of Jesus. And then he says, this same Jesus who will come again, notice how he puts it. He says, uh, and to keep this free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he, God, will display 
at the proper time. He says, and and I'm telling you this, knowing that Jesus is going to return. And I want the whole church to keep this commandment, to keep this charge, until Jesus comes. This isn't something you do once and done, but you keep it until Jesus comes. Just persevering to the end, persevering in faith, generation after generation, till Jesus comes. And he He really is going to come. He says, battle will be won. The victory will come. All that you're trying to grab a hold of now, this eternal life that you're grabbing a hold of now, it will come and a day will come when you'll see it in its fullness and experience in its fullness when Jesus, when he really comes. You'll notice that really all that we need to know about the second coming of Jesus is given to us in in this little expression which uh, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. In other words, it's definite he's coming back. It's guaranteed by God that he's coming back. He will display it. He will show the appearing of Jesus. And it's at the proper time. That is in God's timing. The scripture tells us that nobody knows the day or the hour when Jesus will return. Now we know when he's not going to return. We always know he's not going to return on the day that somebody predicts he's going to return, right? So that's an easy one uh, because Jesus said nobody knows this. So if somebody says they know it, well, they're going to be wrong. So you go, okay, he's not coming back then, I suppose, unless he really wants to be tricky about this. You just never know, right? But he's going to come back in God's proper timing. That is, there's a proper timing. There's an exact moment in time when it's proper, when it's best, when it's right. There's no better time than that. A moment before, a moment after, a century before, a century after wouldn't be the proper time. On the first coming of Jesus, the scripture writes about it, in the fullness of time is the sense that time gave birth to Jesus. It, it was in, it, the time was full. It was ready. This was the right time. There wasn't a better time than that moment in Bethlehem on that night in that stable or whatever it was. That was the best time. And there's another best time, you see, when Jesus will return. That's all we really need to know. That's all the scripture really tells us about that. So just chill out. Don't worry about uh, various predictions and so forth and so on. But he says, keep this commandment. That's what you need to be concerned about. That you need to flee that which is ungodly, pursue that which is righteous. You need to, to fight the good fight of the faith. You need to grab hold of the eternal life, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Do that until Jesus comes, you see. But then he goes on to speak of God, Paul does, in this next expression. Notice what he says. He speaks of God. He says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul goes from that, this description of God, and then ends in this little doxology. A doxology is a praise. Doxa means to praise, to glory in. Um, the rest of the word from Greek word logos, which means to, to speak or word. And so it is to speak a word of praise. So he ends up in this doxology. It's like he's worshiping. And, 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 and yeah, I, at least I ask the question when I'm reading through this. Paul, how'd you get there? Why'd you go there? Of all the different places you could have gone after that last statement, why did you start talking about God in such a way and then lead to this particular doxology? Well, he, he doesn't say why. 
But as we're reading through it, what does it do as we read through it? Why, why do you think? Well, because he's given Timothy at the end of this charge, a charge that may not be as easy as it sounds to obey God in the midst of a city where people aren't obeying God. Anybody resonate with that? With this, this commandment, he says, I want to give you confidence to know that yes, you can. God will help you. In fact, it is true that Jesus really is coming back. Victory will be won. You don't have to worry about that, Timothy, because it's all wrapped up in the very character. It's all wrapped up in the character of God. He begins by saying this. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. This notion that God is is sovereign uh, speaks to us of God's rule. That's the sense of it. As you read through the scripture, one of the images that we see of God is that he's on a throne, that he's ruling and reigning. You might remember, prophet Isaiah enters the temple one day, and all he sees is the train of, of God's robe. He has this vision. The train of the robe fills the temple, meaning God is huge, and he gets this sense, this vision of God on the throne, and the, these angels, cherubim, are around the throne singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Heaven and earth is full of his glory. That great sense that God is ruling and reigning. Uh, we find in the book of Revelation, when John, the apostle, sees this, this revelation of the Lord Jesus, He's taken to this place, and he's in glory. And what does he see when he gets there? Chapter 4 in Revelation. He sees God on a throne, ruling and reigning. This sense that God is sovereign, that he rules and reigns, that he's the king of kings. That is, there, there, there aren't any earthly kings over which he doesn't rule. He's the Lord of lords, meaning there aren't any, any, any deities that the earth knows of or thinks of or has made. He's other lords, over which he is not the Lord. That is, he rules and reigns over all things. Nothing can thwart him, therefore. So he's saying to Timothy, he's saying to us in the midst of our lives, I am in control. I'm ruling and reigning over all of this. No matter what it looks like, I'm ruling and reigning over all of this. Got a little expression that we I like to quote from Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. The next expression tells us why it is that we can be still. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. In other words, a day will come when you'll see me being exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. You may not see it right now, Psalm begins with some scary images of the mountains falling into the sea. He says, even if you see that kind of thing, don't worry because I'm ruling and reigning and I will be exalted. A day will come when you'll see me like that. So import into your life now the meaning of the fact that I'm ruling and reigning. Thus, be still. A.W. Tozer speaks of this sovereignty of God, and he speaks of it uh, like this in a little book called The Knowledge of the Holy. 
He says, God's sovereignty is the attribute by which he rules his entire creation. And to be sovereign, God must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. All-knowing, all-powerful, and free. Were there even one datum of knowledge, however small, unknown to God, his rule would break down at that point. To be Lord over all creation, he must possess all knowledge. And were God lacking one infinitesimal modicum of power, that lack would end his reign and undo his kingdom. That one stray atom of power would belong to someone else and God would be a limited ruler and hence not sovereign. Furthermore, his sovereignty requires that he be absolutely free, which means simply that he must be free to do whatever he wills to do anywhere, at any time, to carry out his eternal purpose in every single detail without interference. Were he less than free, he must be less than sovereign. And thus, as we read through the scripture, uh, we find that God exhibits all of these characteristics of being all-knowing, all-powerful, and most certainly free. For instance, on that last point in Psalm 115, notice how the psalmist puts it concerning God. He says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God is free to do that which he pleases. He is the sovereign one. Because he's sovereign, ruling and reigning over all things, we are to put our trust, our faith in him. John Stott put it like this. He said, our confidence in God's perfect timing and consequent willingness to leave things in his hands arise from the kind of God we know him to be. In other words, Stott is saying, We can be confident to leave things in his hands because of the God we know him to be. And so Paul is laying that out. Who is this? Who is this God? And he begins by saying, first and foremost, that he rules over all things. Now, now that little expression by Stott, I don't want to leave it too quickly because because on the one hand, when when he says that we're consequently willing to leave things in God's hands... You know, it doesn't really matter because things are in his hand. It's not like, okay, God, I'll leave them with you. Oh, oh let me take them from you for a minute. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're in his hand. So, so, so that's not Stott's point. His point is that we're content in the fact that these things are in God's hands. What can make us content that all things are are in God's hands. The only thing that makes us content is when we really know who he is and trust him. If we believed that all things were in our hands, could you sleep? Think of another person to think all things are in their hands. Can you sleep? Think of a president or a congress or a king 
and think all things are in their hands. Could you sleep? Paul lays this out to Timothy and he says, listen, I want you to continue to persevere, continue to obey, continue to be faithful in the midst of the world in which you live, trusting that a day will come when you'll see it, a day will come when Jesus will return, a day will come when all that you're grabbing hold of now will be there in fullness. It really is going to happen. And Timothy might say, well, how do I know it's really going to happen? And Paul would say, well, let me tell you about God. And so you see, this contentedness to leave things in his hand, to be still knowing things are really in his hands. And, and again, we mustn't take this sort of tritely, if you will, just put it on a bumper sticker. Because when we say we're content that all things are in God's hands, we not only mean the end of it, but we also mean everything in between the means to get there. What we're saying is, God, I know that my life is going to be difficult at times and in part and maybe in certain seasons, really difficult. And I'm going to trust that the difficulties in those times are in your hands and I will rest. And I will say in a doxology way, to him be glory and eternal dominion, meaning I'm really happy that you're the one to be glorified, that you're the one doing all of this, that you're the one thinking all of this through, that you're the, all the one planning, you're the one ruling and reigning, and that you have eternal dominion. I'm glad it's all in your hands, even while I'm going through the difficult moment, the difficult days, the difficult year, the difficult decade, the difficulty that I see no end to until I die. I'm trusting you and I'm resting in you. In the midst of that, that's what we're saying. In the difficult relationship, in the relationship that we want to be loved but we're rejected, in the difficult illness, in the difficult emotion, in the difficult loss, in the difficult uncertainty as to how is this thing really going to work out? And will it? And if it doesn't, what does that mean? All of that, you see. So when Paul writes to Timothy, he appeals to the character of God. He says, no one can live out this charge. No one can live out this life lest they grab hold of who God really is. Now, Timothy, you're not going to get all of this. Church, you're not going to understand the mystery of all of this. But please know that God is the only sovereign. There isn't any other ruler other than him. Ultimately, he rules over everything, over nature, over your lives, over the lives of others who interact and intersect with you, over governments, over kings, over presidents, over congresses, over all of that. He's ruling and reigning over disease. Whatever that is, he's ruling and reigning over that. He's the only sovereign. Trust him and how all that is working out because there is an end to which it's coming and all that is good. Now, were there difficulties with this notion of sovereignty? 
Yes. Are there mysteries there that make it difficult for us to understand? Yes, we wonder, well, if God is sovereign, is he good? I mean, come on, with all the evil in the world, how could a sovereign one who could put an end to it allow this to occur and all of that? And why would he create a world in which his evil could come and all of that? And and, and the answer that the scripture gives us is that God is good. Trust him. You'll see it. We say, if God is sovereign, then what about my life? What about my choices? What about my proverbial free will? And and we say, well, we make decisions that's true and we're free in some sense, but not in every sense. If God is sovereign and you're responsible, I'm responsible for the decisions that we make, the choices that we make, but he's still sovereign. He still rules and reigns even over my choices, the Bible tells me all of that. So we live in the midst of, yes, that mystery, yes, those tensions. But in the midst of all of that, the scripture tells us, grab a hold of this fact that he's the only sovereign, that he rules and reigns and no one can thwart him. Paul goes on to say, that he's the one who alone has immortality. In other words, his plan can never be thwarted because he can't be snuffed out. He is immortal in his being, both not beginning, no end. Here he is, God. He is immortal. He is life itself. He depends on no one, nothing for that life that he has. It says he dwells in unapproachable light. In other words, he is light. Darkness cannot come into his place. That his evil cannot come into his place. It can't even approach him. So it could never overtake him. So nothing evil can overtake him. He is this unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen uh, or can see. No one can even get to him. You remember there was a time in the life of Moses when Moses said to God, I want to see your glory. And, And God says, well, all right, but you can't see my front, only my back. Because if you saw my front, you would die. So he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he passes by. All his goodness passes by Moses. And Moses doesn't see his front, but he sees his back. Because you see, no one can really see him. So no one can really destroy him. And so the confidence is he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the only sovereign. He's immortal. No one can snuff out his life. Darkness can't overtake him. So Paul says to him, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, if you're as obsessive compulsive as I am, which you may not be able to be, but if you were, you would be saying, he left out a word. I'll give you five seconds to think about what that word is I left out. It's the word blessed. Notice, middle of verse 15. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. Now, what does that mean? That God is blessed. And I left it to the end, even though Paul used it in the beginning. Pardon me for that. But I left it to the end because I think we understand blessed once we understand all these other things. Now, the little word blessed is is, is a word that's used of human beings in relation to God throughout the scripture. For instance, 
in what we call the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, and so forth and so on. This blessedness is something spoken to of, of us. As we read through the scripture, for instance, Jesus talked about the one who's blessed, who, who, who follows his example as he washed his disciples' feet and loved them. Uh, we follow his example. He says, you're blessed in the doing of this. Uh, we read through uh, the book of Revelation, we find great blessings there. Blessed are you if you take up this book and read and obey it. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Um, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. This blessing. When we think of that blessing, we think of the person who is highly favored by God and in such a way should be filled with joy, should be very satisfied, should be contented. Now also, and this is really the truest definition of this little Greek word, the truest definition is simply the word happy. Now I don't like the word happy because it, it, it seems connected to circumstances sometimes. We're happy sometimes, we're sad sometimes, we smile sometimes, we frown, that kind of happiness. It sort of seems haphazard, happenstance, happening, you know, happy. It, it's all related to the moment, to the, to the circumstance. And, 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 and there seems to be a giddiness about happy that, that I, I like blessed better. You know what I mean? Contented and joyful and, and all of that. Plus, there was a man who once wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount called the Happy, no, it's called the Be Happy Attitudes. And I just don't like that at all. But it really does mean happy, no matter how much I don't like it. Because you see, there's a nuance here, there's an aspect of the word happy that, that has to be in this blessedness, which is a sheer delight, a great celebration there is a happiness that's blessed and so what this is saying about God is that he's happy he's the happy blessed he's the happy God Paul uses this expression uh, in, in, in chapter 1 uh, of 1 Timothy and if you're really obsessive compulsive you would realize I skipped this when I worked through chapter 1 Verse 11, it said, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. He's saying this gospel is, is, is glorious and the glory of God is great. And what reveals the very glory of God is that in the midst of all of this and all of this, God is happy. And what does that mean? And how does that really help Timothy? How does that really help us to know that? Well, first of all, we speak about God being happy. It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that he's delighted when we sin. It doesn't mean that when we're going through difficulties, God is laughing. It doesn't mean that. We know that he sympathizes, even through Jesus, empathizes with our weaknesses, and he comes to us in mercy and grace. We know all of that. We see it in the life of Jesus over and over again as he weeps because he's concerned about the sin of people. And so when we sin, when someone hurts us, when we go through difficulties of various kinds, God isn't laughing. That's not what it means that he's happy like that. We have to give God this uh, credit of being a complex being, that he can be happy and sad at the same time, happy and grieved at the same time, just like we can be. We can know happiness and grief 
all at the same time. I remember one time I had one of my kids missing for a little while and we couldn't find that particular one. And um, when he did show up, I had conflicting emotions. On the one hand, I was happy to see him. On the other hand, I wanted to kill him, right? So, so God is at least as complicated as we are. And so there's this sense in which, so, so, so when he's blessed, he's happy. Don't, don't, don't go in those places where it doesn't apply, where the context is out. So, so, so think, but, but what then does it mean that he's blessed, that he's the happy God? It means this, as the prophet Isaiah said, he does see the end from the beginning. That is, he knows where this is going to be. And not only does God dwell here, but he dwells there. And in that circumstance, in that particular place, when it all comes to fruition, God is happy because all is well and all is right as it should be. That's where he is in this sense. And in this sense, he is indeed the happy and only sovereign. And he's happy because he knows that he's sovereign. And he knows that he knows everything. And he knows that he's all-powerful. He knows that he's free to do what pleases him. And he know what, knows what pleases him is really good. And so he, he knows that nothing can thwart him. He has the best plan. And he has the best way to get there. And nothing can thwart him from getting us to the best place in the best way. Now, he gets that. He knows that. He sees that. He lives in that. We only know it by faith. At a particular moment in time, this may not seem like the best way to get there. But he knows what we don't. And he says to us, trust me. If there was a better way for you and all of us to get there, that would be the plan. But trust me. You know how great it is to have a happy God? Wouldn't it be horrible if Paul had written, Timothy, you have to do this because God's really worried. He doesn't know how this is going to work out. And he's just really upset and he's angry and he's everything. That wouldn't help us at all. You know, it is in this big storm hits and kid looks at dad and as long as dad's happy, then I can be happy too. But if dad starts to panic, we're in trouble. God isn't panicking. He isn't panicking. He isn't panicking when the stock market crashes. He isn't panicking when we lose our jobs. He isn't panicking when we're told we have cancer. He isn't panicking when our kids disobey. He's not panicking when we struggle with sin. He's not panicking when we're discouraged. He's not panicking when difficulty enters into our lives. God isn't panicking. When you say, well, how can he not panic? He goes, well, I know myself. I know what pleases me is good. And I know I'm sovereign over all things. I'm the only sovereign. And I know the darkness can't overtake me. And I know that my life can't be snuffed out. And I know where this is going. So for a moment, come with me there. For a moment, come to me that that circumstance. Is happiness circumstantial? Well, yeah. 
And God's in that circumstance at the very end. And he says, live with me here. I know you've got to live in this world. Yes, do that. But live in this world from this other place where it is good. And it all does glorify God. And then you see, at any moment in time, no matter what we're going through, we can say, to him be honor and eternal dominion. In other words, I'm happy. Well, I may not be happy with what's going on. I may not be happy in the circumstance. It may be painful. I may be crying. But if I have a moment of happiness, a place of happiness. That place of happiness is knowing that God has eternal dominion. Not this moment, not this feeling, not this person, not this disease, not this circumstance. That doesn't have eternal dominion. God does. And he's happy in the outcome. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us (laughs) that this can make sense to us. In the midst of the life in which we live, some of us are living a wonderful time right now, and so we just got to put this in the bank, think upon it, rest in it. Perhaps we can take it backwards in our life and think of times in our lives that have been very difficult that we haven't really been able to face and wonder why, and, and, and can I really deal with that circumstance? And so, Father, I pray we can take this truth and take it back to places in our lives. It will enable us to deal with it and say, oh yes, okay. God is at work, was at work, sovereign. He knows the outcome. He's pleased. I'll live in that. For as we face God, all kinds of uncertainties in the context of our lives. We pray that we may know the blessed and only sovereign, our happy God. And we may trust in him. Father, I pray for the Hartzler and McAllister families on the death of Lorinda and Lavana's brother that you would be with them, that they would, they would know you and trust you and rest in you. From our brown father as he faces another surgery on Tuesday on his knee and subsequent surgeries after that because of the motorcycle accident, I pray for Mark that you would enable him to know your presence as well and to know that you are the blessed and only sovereign. You were sovereign on the day when that truck in front of him stopped. You're sovereign today and you'll lead him to that which is good. Be with Mark, be with Brenda, be with Katie, Father. Father, for Nick and Pam Allen as they brought their little boy home from the hospital after his birth and and, uh, being in the neonatal unit for a little while. Father, we pray for them that they would rejoice uh, as we with them in the birth of their child, but also, Father, that you'll give them rest for the future as well. For Mary Webb, Father, as she um, prays for and cares for her husband who's scheduled for lung surgery this week, that you would be with her and she too would know this truth and that you would impress it upon Eldon as well. Father, for the community at New City in St. Louis, the church there, 
as they grieve the death of this young man, Keith, who we have known. As well, that you would be with that community as they care for his family and grieve this loss, and that you would grant them confidence as well. Father, for us in ministry as a church, that you would give us confidence to know that you're working all things out as as we share the gospel with people and some receive it and some don't, that we know that you're sovereign over all of that and we can trust you with it and trust you with our lives and their lives as well. Father, we give you thanks for the international student ministry yesterday and the work that was done and we pray that great fruit will come from that, that many who have come to this country will feel the blessing of Christ as they're given stuff to help them as friendships are made and for as the gospel is shared as well, Father. So God be with us. We are weak and our faith uh, falters. So keep before us, I pray at all times, that you are the only sovereign, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who dwells in unapproachable light no one has ever seen or can see. And to you be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Uh, please stand for the benediction. As, I, as you do, I remind you there'll be elders available to pray uh, after the service, so please take advantage. Come forward, please take advantage of that. And please receive this as God's benediction. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Worship the King, all glorious above. Oh, gratefully sing His wonderful love. Our shield and defender, the Ancient of Days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with.